Section 18 of Kentucky's Famous Feuds and Tragedies by Charles G. Mutzenberg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Kentucky's Famous Feuds and Tragedies by Charles G. Mutzenberg. Section 18. The French Eversole War, Part 1. The scene of this war was Perry County, Kentucky one of the most mountainous sections of all southeastern Kentucky. Hazard, the county seat, was then a small but very thrifty and enterprising village. It was called a town. Rightfully, it ought not to have aspired to that title. It is situated on the north fork of the Kentucky River and was built in scattered fashion between abrupt hills in the rear and the river with but a single street running through it. Here at Hazard was the cradle of the feud which, for years, filled newspaper columns and furnished most sensational reading. Many of the stories which have gone out to the world had, however, no other foundation than a lively imagination of newspaper writers who were anxious to fill space and to please the readers that loved the sensational. In this purpose they have succeeded admirably. Here at Hazard resided the chieftains of this war, Joseph C. Eversole and Benjamin Fulton French. Both were men of fine business abilities, successfully engaged in the mercantile business. Both were prominent, able lawyers of the Perry Courts. Both were in easy financial circumstances. Eversole was extensively related in Perry and adjoining counties. French had originally come from the state of Tennessee, but had married a Kentuckian, and by marriage had become related to influential families of Breathitt, Leslie, and other counties. Prior to the difficulties which eventually arrayed them against each other, Eversole and French had been apparently close friends. A misunderstanding over a rather trivial matter furnished the basis of their future enmity, an enmity to the death. The bird on the snowy alpine slope starts an insignificant slide. It increases as it rolls downward and becomes an avalanche, thundering into the valley below, carrying everything before it and leaving a path of desolation, destruction, and death behind it. So a trivial difference over a business transaction opened graves for many brave and generous men, desolated happy homes, and for a long time heaped shame upon the name of Perry County and the state at large. French and Eversole disagreed and quarreled. At each subsequent meeting the quarrel was renewed with ever-increasing bitterness menacing threats were freely indulged in until the vials of hate became filled to overflowing a theretofore existing sharp business rivalry materially assisted the estrangement from the start as stated both were engaged in the mercantile business in which each tried to outdo the other often at a material loss Serious trouble might yet have been averted through the interference of honest friends, but for an unfortunate circumstance, which involved them to such an extent that the breach became irreparable. 
the circumstance referred to might however never have had serious consequences had it not been for the pernicious activity of the slanderous tale-teller in this feud perhaps more so than in any of the internecine strifes which during the eighties added to the significance of the title the dark and bloody ground and intensified the crimson hue of its history we find those who shunned battle feared to oppose their breasts to the shock of bullet but gloried in pouring oil upon the flames without danger to themselves in such a struggle the tale-bearer is more dangerous than powder and shot morally and legally he who instigates a murder even by indirection is as much a murderer as the man who fires the gun and accomplishes the bloody deed with the countenance of the saint such a man will seek the confidence of both sides he loves to pose as a peacemaker he preaches brotherly love yet when the trouble is about to abate he seems to regret it for then he seizes upon every chance uses every opportune moment to convey some confidential intelligence to the party or parties for whose ears it had been least intended the strife is renewed passions are rekindled yet while men welter in their hearts blood widows mourn and orphans cry the traitor the tale-teller the scandal peddler maintains his saintly countenance and bewails the fate of the unfortunates yet it is not always the spoken slander the spoken tale that hurts the old adage that silence is golden is not to be applied in all cases silence is often even more dangerous than spoken words silence may become a greater liar than the tongue we often hear the expression if you cannot speak good of anyone say nothing yet silence is the most bitter poisonous insidious traducer silence may convey contempt more completely than a torrent of spoken words silence is most treacherous because it places the burden of its interpretation upon the other side that interpretation may be wrong but the silent slanderer does not correct it silence is also many-sided it may mean consent it may mean denial it does incalculable harm without being in the least responsible or actionable one cannot horsewhip one for injury to character through silence silence and innuendo are closely related both are the most dangerous weapons of the moral coward spoken lies are soon forgotten they rile the blood but that passes spoken lies are tangible as it were and may be met silence and innuendo are like enemies in invisible ambush one cannot attack an invisible foe what we have reference to might best be illustrated by the following dialogue the writer once overheard a tell me truly did he make that charge against me b turns away and refuses to answer a 
I heard he had made that charge against me to you and threatened my life. Is that true? No answer. A. I may then presume by your silence that it is true what I have asked you about? No reply. Result of silence. A homicide and the destruction of two families. Asked later why he did not nip the trouble in its incipiency by resorting to a white lie, B answered with asperity that A had put his own construction upon his silence and refusal to have anything whatever to say in their controversy. On the stand, B admitted that the third party in question had not told him what A had inquired about, ergo, B was morally responsible for the homicide, as much so as the man that pulled the trigger. Reverting to the circumstance which completed the breach between French and Eversole, a certain friend of French conveyed information to Eversole that he, French, sought his life. This informant was a clerk in the store of French, and known to be in his confidence. Naturally, under such circumstances, Eversole gave the report credence. Why not? We are ever ready to believe and accept as true anything that is spoken of an enemy, and French and Eversole had already become such in their hearts, if not outwardly. The tale-bearer, who shall be nameless, related how French had planned to rid himself of his business rival, and thus make for himself a clear field for mercantile operations. That French expected to accomplish his purpose with the aid of trusty hired assassins, and that one part of the plan, the employment of reliable murderers, had been entrusted to him, the informant, who had been promised any amount of money necessary for this purpose, and a partnership with French in the business as a further reward for his services. Whether for real or imaginary causes, this tale-bearer had become intensely jealous of French over a woman. He sought consolation in revenge, one of the first steps toward the consummation of his desire to ruin his rival in love had been the bearing of the tale referred to to Eversole. Eversole, after weighing carefully the statement, seemed to have entertained some doubt of its truth and requested a sworn affidavit containing the statements made. This the tale-teller readily prepared with such clearness of detail as to cause Eversole to dismiss all doubt of the truth of the revelations, and at once prepared to meet his enemy well. French saw the ominous gathering of the Eversole clan, fully armed, and surrounded himself with an equally strong force. Both of the belligerents kept busy recruiting among their friends and kindred in Perry and even adjoining counties. Man after man was added to the clans, some joining them bound by the strong ties of relationship or friendship. The most, however, were attracted by promises of good steady pay and an opportunity to violate the law on a grander scale than they would have dared to do single-handed. The first murder occurred shortly after the gathering of the clans. One of French's staunchest friends, one Silas Gayhart, 
was shot and killed from ambush. This mode of warfare was resorted to in this feud perhaps more generally than in any of the others. It must not be attributed altogether to cowardice, this murdering from ambush. It has many advantages. Of course, killing an enemy from ambush puts the slayers out of danger. That is one consideration, but the chiefest one is that it is almost impossible to fasten the guilt of the crime upon the proper person. When men are banded together for the purpose of committing crime, the sanctity of an oath is easily laid aside when an alibi becomes necessary. The entire population of the county may know the assassins, point them out to you as they stalk proudly along, yet when it comes to trials by jury, the evidence seems to signally fail to connect them. The very men that might have told you in confidence the most damaging circumstances connecting the accused with crime will, on the stand, disclaim all knowledge, or so soften down their statements that no jury could, under their oaths, find a verdict of guilty. In this murder of Gayhart, at least a dozen white men and some Negroes participated. It is unfortunate that circumstances do not permit us to give the names of them. They should be preserved for posterity, and added to the list of feud heroes. As no one was ever indicted for that cowardly assassination, although its perpetrators were well known throughout the county, history must necessarily remain silent in so far as the publication of their names is concerned. It has been stated and contended that the killing of Gayhart was an affair entirely disconnected with the French Eversole controversy, that the man had fallen as a victim of a quarrel with persons not members of the clan. This may be true, and it may not. It is difficult in such social upheavals to get at the unvarnished truth. When crimes are committed under cover of black night, from well-secreted places, suspicion might point in the wrong direction and accuse the innocent. For this reason, it is best to abstain from charges not definitely established beyond any sort of doubt. The result of the Gayhart murder, however, was the same as if he had been publicly assassinated by the Eversole clan, for French believed that Gayhart lost his life because of his friendship for him. French sent out more recruiting officers. The increase of his army forced the Eversoles to do likewise. How similar is this to the struggle of nations to maintain superior armies and navies? It is not strange, after all. Communities stand relatively in the same attitude as do nations. A community is a miniature state, nothing more. The little village of Hazard, with its one hundred inhabitants, was now thrown into a state of perpetual excitement, which continued uninterrupted through the summer, fall, and winter of 1887. That no battle was fought was due to the extreme caution with which the clans watched each other's every move. Then early one morning the Eversole faction learned to their astonishment 
that French and his army had evacuated the town during the night. Many theories were advanced in explanation of this singular action. Some attributed it to fear. Those better acquainted with the temper and makeup of the French clan scouted that idea and suggested that French was seeking reinforcement in the country and that at an opportune moment he would sweep down upon the village, trap the hemmed-in Eversoles, and annihilate them with overwhelming forces. This seemed a rational conclusion. With French gone from town, Eversole declined to be caught in such a trap, as trap it would have been, and to prevent the execution of French's plan, the Eversoles themselves retreated to a section of the country peopled with their sympathizers. However, Eversole did not leave Hazard open to undisputed occupation. He left a bait there, a small force. If French should learn of the weakness of the garrison, he would be tempted to sweep down upon it. In doing so, he would find Eversole striking in his rear. French himself was shrewd and refused to fall into the trap. Eversole scouted everywhere, frequently on the trail of French. During the month of June, in the dark of night, the latter re-entered Hazard, took possession of his fortified places where most of his men remained secreted, while the more daring of them walked the streets the next morning, bantering the Eversoles that had been left in town. Their leader was at once notified by messenger to the country of the state of affairs. He had but few men with him at that time, but with these started for town. Seven or eight men, fortunately for him, joined his ranks on the way. End of section 18